the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When Jesus gets his ministry going, he quickly runs into problems. All sorts of trouble. He quickly discovers that people are far more afraid of God, are far more afraid of spiritual things than he ever realizes. He heals people, he heals, and people think that he is the one that is possessed, that he has a demon. He goes from town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God, this holy realm that includes everyone, and it's simply too much for people to hear. Whoever wrote this gospel must have heard this story relatively quickly after it happened because it even says little details that Jesus was so tired from starting his ministry that he didn't even have time to eat. His family, his family was obviously worried with his behavior and they also pleaded him to stop, but he would not. He kept going. He would have nothing to do with people who were criticizing these acts of love. And he issues one of the sternest warnings he ever gives. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. In other words, if you confuse love with evil, you're making a big mistake. So the crowd then, all the people around him, try a very different approach to try to get Jesus to stop what he's doing. They use his family. And Jesus says, who is my family? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around those who sit around him, he said, here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So obviously Jesus hates families. No, not really. Based on <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Based on what we know about Jesus, how could he really mean that? Everything we know about Jesus is about building people up, supporting communities, forgiving sins, and including everyone, even the good Samaritan the prodigal son, the woman who's about to be stoned to death, and even the lepers, the people you were literally never supposed to touch, you were never supposed to associate with. Religious people weren't even expected to see them, even the lepers. Jesus could not possibly hate families. It makes no sense. So I invite you to consider today that Jesus is telling us that we live in a bigger kingdom than we think we do. We live in a bigger world, in a bigger society, in a bigger family of God than we think we do. We live in a bigger kingdom than we think. In Jesus' world, family was everything. Family alliances were crucial for marrying off your children. Family was your support. Family was your identity. Whether you wanted it or not, in Jesus' era, you were stuck with your family. It would have been absolutely inconceivable to decide to reject your family. No one would have imagined it. You literally might die. So let's go further. 
In Jesus' era, your family identity meant that you could be included and incorporated into something larger than yourself. But, and this is big in many ways, you were strictly limited by your family. We live in an era now where many of us were raised to believe you can be anything you want to be. But in Jesus' time, you knew your place from a very young age. If you were, a, if you were poor, your family would always be poor. If you were a Samaritan and lived in an area literally about 30 miles to the north-northeast of Jerusalem, there is absolutely no way you would ever be accepted as a member of Jewish society. You would not. Even all these remarks that we hear about Jesus and his disciples, when people call them Galileans, that's not meant to identify them. That's meant to shame them. It's meant to diminish their humanity. In Jesus' era, you had almost no choice on how you lived or what you did for work or who you became as an adult. It was all about being part of this very closed system, some kind of tribe. In some ways, it was tribalism at its most basic. And a lot of times, we think this doesn't happen anymore. But think about it. It's no wonder in our modern era that Israelis and Palestinians have such a hard time seeing each other as equals, really in any way. Or it's no wonder why the people in Myanmar, also known as Burma, can easily turn against the Rohingya people in their same country. Or 25 years ago in Rwanda, it's no wonder why the Hutus and the Tutsis hated each other so much that over a million people died, even though their ethnic delineations were mythologized about a century earlier by the Belgians. Or why people in our country think that Muslims cannot be real Americans. Or why we stratify people based on the color of their skin or who they love or what types of wedding cakes they order for whatever type of occasion or whether they're born here or arrived fleeing danger or extreme poverty and we have somehow decided that it is okay and that we are somehow okay with sitting idly by when their children are separated from their parents at the border. For some reason, it's easy for us to get tribal and to believe somehow deep down in our hearts, to believe somehow those people are not like us, or they couldn't possibly value what I value, or they couldn't possibly be as smart or as skillful or as clever or as loving or as human as you or I. That is our trap. Jesus is telling us that we live in a kingdom that is bigger than we think. We fear the possibilities of God so much that we'd rather hunker down, compartmentalize, and stereotype our way through life. We do this because we think that it makes us comfortable, but it really makes us afraid. Talking about Beelzebul within... We are deceived. We're deceived into thinking that our racism and classism and hetero or homosexism, cultural superiority, or our unwillingness to have genuine curiosity 
about the other makes us comfortable. But we have failed. We have failed miserably, deplorably. We are Jesus' family in this story. We don't get it. We want Jesus to stop because we don't see what Jesus sees. Jesus sees that we live in a kingdom, a much bigger kingdom than we think. So what would it mean then for us to dream? To imagine this kingdom, this reality, this realm, this new take on life that ultimately Jesus is asking us, inviting us, literally begging us to step into. For starters, we have to love God more, a whole lot more. We need to work on it. We need to love God really. And then we need to work on ourselves. Because if we don't love ourselves, and we don't do that hard work of loving ourselves, how can we possibly extend agape, this self-emptying, life-giving, shamelessly selfless love to others in the world? We have to start there. Loving God fully with no limits and loving ourselves better than we currently do. But we can't stop there. We must not stop there. We have to push to love others and truly believe that we are all children descended from the same creator. The children of a creator who blessed us into reality and called all of us good. All of us. The people that we like today and the people we don't like today. The people that we know who are known to us and people who are unknown. But most especially, we think, but most especially, we are called to the people we think. And sadly, all of us have this culture of stratification in our mind, whether it's in our conscious selves or in our unconscious selves, most especially the people we think that are hmm, somehow not entirely equal to us. That's where Jesus wants us to go. That's where Jesus challenges us to love. That's where Jesus wants us to open our hearts with genuine curiosity, with wonder and a whole lot of enthusiasm, even if it means that the people around us don't understand us anymore. Even if it means that our own families think that they they begin questioning our motives. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our fellow brothers and sisters, and we owe it very much to Jesus to break this mold and repent and return from the past and to truly realize that we're all in this together and God's kingdom is a whole lot bigger than we think. Yesterday, we had an amazing day around here. It was, it was in, I've never seen the cathedral as full as it was. We had the ordination of 10 new deacons, 10. And our own, very own Tanya Watt, who is serving today as deacon, and also David Chavez, whom all of you know as well, were included in the ordinations. Their pictures are in the bulletin if you don't know them personally. And it's exactly from the story we heard yesterday about how deacons began in the church that we see how Jesus' disciples at one point finally got it. 
they finally got what Jesus was talking about in this reading we hear today. It took them a little time, but not really that long. They finally got it. In the book of Acts chapter 6, that's what we read yesterday, there's a story about how deacons came to be. And It starts with there's certain people in Jerusalem that are complaining to the disciples because their widows are being neglected by other Christians in Jerusalem. So the disciples meet and they decide that they're going to ordain deacons for the task of meeting the needs of the greater community. And here's where this reading gets really good. The reading actually lists the names of all those ordained. Names Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Catch that? The last person who was named wasn't a Jewish convert to Christianity. He wasn't one of them. Instead, he was a non-Jew who was devoted to God in the same way as them, but he was religiously and culturally considered an outsider. He was considered on the outside. And he wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from Antioch, a city in modern-day Turkey that's over 500 miles away. In literally just a few months after the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples of Jesus purposely included an outsider from one of the noblest, most revered, most highly respected positions of responsibility in the church as one of the original deacons. In such a short time, this gospel message of inclusion, of going out and establishing a community with people who are far different than ourselves, was championed in a way that finally, yes, finally, the kingdom of God was being more fully realized. The Christian people outside of Jerusalem had a voice. The Christian people of God were starting to truly resemble and bring forth that kingdom of God. And the dreams that Jesus begged his disciples to be a part of were truly becoming a reality. We know, we know what Jesus is asking us to do today. We know. The early church did it. And we can too. The more we think we're different from people in the first century, the more we realize that we are people, and they were people, and we were and are both people of the kingdom of God, the family of God. We've got this. Jesus is begging his followers, us, to do this. There's an expansive family out there. Time to search them out because the family of God, the kingdom of God is out there and it's a whole lot bigger than we think. So where do you begin?